Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, today we are wrapping up our series entitled Taking Responsibility for Your Life. And I want to welcome all of you at all of our churches, especially those of you that are maybe with us for the very first time today. Um, because here's what's important. We're in our third week of this conversation, taking responsibility for your life. And we have looked in the past two weeks at some very foundational truths that really... Um, they're important to have that solid foundation you need, not just for your life, but also as you interact with other people. So if you missed any of this series, I would encourage you to go to rivertown.cc forward slash messages because we put our full online um, sermon, our full sermon online there on our website. If you go to our YouTube, it's just a little short um, kind of help you get by kind of sermon, right? Like 10 or 12 minute kind of deal. So, um, this will give you the whole message in case you want to go back and you want to um, listen to it again or you want somebody else to listen to it with you there. And if you go to our website, you can also find some discussion guides there that will help you take this into further application throughout your week and maybe somebody else that you're mentoring or somebody that you're discipling or somebody that you're working with. Now, today, as we wrap up this conversation, we're going to look at a story that is found in the historical document we call Joshua. And that is in the Old Testament part of your Bibles, if you want to go ahead and find that because this story, what it does is it addresses three different groups of us. See, when it comes to how we think about or how we respond to irresponsibility, what you'll discover is many of us, we fall into one or more of three different categories. In fact, as I look back over my life, um, I think I've struggled with all three of these different categories of dealing with irresponsibility in different seasons of my life. So let me give you the three categories, and then we're going to go to Joshua and learn from him. So here's what I know about some of us when it comes to dealing with irresponsibility. We are excusers. See, some of us, we are excusers because we excuse our own irresponsibility, you hear a message like this or someone has the courage to talk to you about the choices that you're making or the irresponsibility they see in an area of your life or certain areas of your life, and your immediate response is to come back and excuse yourself. In fact, some of you, you've gotten really good at excusing yourself by playing the rights card. Like, well, it's none of your business. It's my life, and you don't have the right to tell me what to do. I can do what I want to do, when I want to do, with whom I want to do. Like, who do you think that you are to speak into my life this way? Or some of the other ways that some of us excuse ourselves is we're the kind of person who always justifies everything. And you have this knack for just lying to yourself and even lying to others, it's really a form of self-deception about why you are doing what you're doing and the outcome that it's going to create in your life. Like you have perfected the art of self-deception, but not only have you perfected the art of self-deception, the other way that you excuse yourself is by blaming others. And so the reality is you blame other people and then you make excuses for whatever you do or for whatever you fail to do. So that's the first group of us. They're excusers. And then some of us, we are enablers. When it comes to irresponsibility, we are enablers. See, enablers, they see irresponsibility in others and they encourage or condone the irresponsibility in others by the way that they respond. In other words, whenever somebody that you care about is irresponsible, you try to bail them out. You try to rescue them from their consequences. 
In other words, if you're an enabler, you try to cover for your friends, you make excuses for your boyfriend, or you make excuses for your girlfriend or your spouse's behavior, you don't challenge them to change. You don't let them feel the full weight of the consequences of their choices. You give them money to bail them out. You've even gone so far, some of you, to lie for them. So you pick up the slack and you do what they were responsible to do, but they were too irresponsible to do it. And so you do it for them. And by doing that, you enable them. And then, excuse me. And then <clears throat> there are our third group of people. And that are what we call the prayers. And when you first look at this, you go, oh, that's a good group of people. Hang on just a second. Here's why. Because typically... Religious people or church people make up this group. Though, if even though you don't consider yourself a church person or a Christ follower, you will probably see that you have done this at times in your own life. And what we mean by prayer, and by the way, prayer is one of the most important foundations for your life when you're doing it in the right context. But here's the thing you have to understand. Prayers, as we are talking about it right now, they are the people who try to hide behind their prayers and expect God to fix all the problems because of their irresponsibility. They're the people that do this. They're like, God, now I'm not going to be able to pay my bills this month because I blew all my money over here on this vacation and I, I spent a whole lot more than I thought I was going to spend and we really didn't budget for it. and We didn't really have any margin, so please help us figure out how to do this, God. Or God, I spent more money when I went shopping and now the creditors are calling because I can't pay my credit card bill. So God, give me a job. Can you help me get a new job making more money? Because if you just help me get a job making more money, that would solve all my problems. Or, or maybe your prayers are something more like this. You know, God, my marriage is falling apart. You know, my relationships at work are falling apart. Everything in my life is crumbling because I've ignored what you said to do about how to have great relationships. Now, God, will you show up and will you fix my marriage like right now? I mean, I've spent like the last 10 or 15 years destroying it by not listening to how I'm supposed to treat my spouse or I've destroyed all my relationship with my friends over the last 10 or 15 years. But will you show up and do something now? Will you fix it right now? I'm just tired of being miserable, God, so fix it. Now, here's the thing I know. If you're one of our churches today, and you're not a very religious person, this sounds pretty irresponsible to you to make a mess with your life and then expect God to fix it. But you got to understand, us religious people, us church people, we tend to do this all the time. We create this big mess with our lives, and then we expect God to clean it up. And even more than that, we get angry at God if he doesn't. We're like, God, why don't you come through for me? And so what we do is we hide behind our prayers sometimes. Well, today's story, what it does is it dress, addresses all three of these categories. It addresses all of us who fall into one or more of these groups. Now, here's the thing. If you're not familiar with Joshua's story... Let me just give you a little bit of background. Joshua is the guy who stepped in to lead Israel into the promised land. He is the guy, let me have another mic pack. Guys, you know what? This is crazy. We worked all week testing this mic thing, seeing why it did, because if you were here last week, it started messing up as well. Um, 
Testing, one, two, there we go. And some of you are thinking, y'all are pretty irresponsible not to check that mic problem out. <laughs> but we have checked that mic problem for three weeks now. And it's like, when the, during the week, we never have a problem with this thing. So we're going to buy just a whole new mic. So make sure somebody gives some extra money this week. So um, <laughs> these things aren't cheap because we've put off buying mic for about three weeks trying to see how it would work during the week. And um, yeah, I think they cost about $2,500. So just... <laughs> just in case God lays that on your heart. Um, <laughs> all right. Now, where were we at? Oh, let's back up and say, talk about where we're at. We're saying that all three of us fall into these three different categories. And um, in the story of Joshua that we're going to be looking at today, Joshua deals with all three of these areas. We, we understand it from the experience we're going to see, but just a little bit of context for who Joshua is. He's the guy who stepped in to lead Israel into the promised land after Moses died. And so Joshua has been kind of being apprenticed by Moses, and now Joshua is the leader of several million people who have been in the wilderness for like 40 years. I mean, it's just a miserable mess. So here's what's happening. About 650 years though before Joshua, God promised a man by the name of Abraham that he was going to make him a great nation. He says, Abraham, from your family, I'm going to create a great nation. And he says, this nation that I'm going to create for you, it's going to possess a land that God was going to show Abraham. We know it as the promised land. But God would not give Abraham and his family this land until several generations after Abraham. So that was kind of the promise. Well, now, 650 years later, God has chosen Joshua to lead Abraham's descendants and these Israelites, the Jewish people, to this land called the promised land. Now, there's a problem. There's a problem. Because the land was already preoccupied. There were already a group of people living in the promised land. Now, this group of people that were living in the promised land, they were called the Canaanites. And so God comes to Joshua and he says, Joshua, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to give this land, but here's the thing. You're going to have to fight battle after battle after battle. Literally, Joshua's army, you're going to have to fight and destroy all the Canaanites in the land before Israel can take possession of the promised land. Now, for some of you, when you hear that, you go, that could sound pretty harsh. could sound very harsh, especially in the context of some of the conversations that are going on in our world today. In fact, this is an issue that a lot of people um, bring up or mention as a reason of why they don't follow God or why they don't believe in the Bible. Like, how can you follow a God who has people killed? I mean, that doesn't sound like a very loving God to go in and drive out a group of people out of their land and kill people. But here's the thing. If you are thinking that, then you're, you're making a judgment about something that happened thousands of years ago. And, and there's a critical piece of information that's missing if you automatically go there. What happens is, is we don't understand the context of the culture of that time. So before we read what happens when Joshua enters the promised land, let me give you a little background to explain why God would tell the Israelites, you need to go in and wipe out these people called the Canaanites. See, the Canaanites were an incredibly corrupt and evil group of people. For example, these people, they would take children and they would burn them on their altars to their gods. 
they would brutalize the other people groups that were living around them. Like torture, rape, and sodomy were all acceptable behaviors in their culture. And God had been warning the Canaanites for several hundreds of years, you need to change your ways. You need to change your ways. And they didn't. In fact, they became more evil and more barbaric. So let me ask you a question. When you hear news stories today of terrorists raping women and young girls or beheading children and mothers, like when you hear the assaults on people in innocent villages, what's your gut reaction? What what do you feel? I mean, you say somebody's got to stop that, right? Well, the people in Canaan were the terrorists of the day. So after giving these Canaanites centuries to repent and to change their ways, God finally did what most of us all want done when somebody is terrorizing somebody else. They've had hundreds of years. They've had their chance to repent. And so God says, okay, this has to end, and I'm going to give my people this land. So what happens is, is Joshua leads the Israelites across the Jordan River. That was a miracle kind of in itself. And so, I mean, that was just kind of amazing. You know, the people are kind of pumped from this. And the first city they have to take is Jericho. Now, Jericho had these large fortified walls. And if you grew up in church, you remember this story because God gives Joshua a very strange war strategy. It's a really strange war plan. Um, He tells Joshua, he says, I don't want you to attack the city of Jericho yet. Uh, What I want you to do is I, I want you to take your army and I want you to march around the walls of the city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, what I want you to do is I want you to march around it seven times. And then at the end of the seventh time, I want you to yell really loud and I want you to blow these trumpets that you have and the walls are going to come crashing down. And then you can take the city, but you can't take any of the plunder and you can't take any of the spoils. See, that's how the soldiers used to get paid whenever they would conquer a city they got to take the plunder and the spoil, and that was kind of their pay. And God says, I don't want them to do that this time because I'm going to take the city because I'm going to bring the walls down. All you have to do is march around it for seven days. And he says, everything in the city needs to be left there, and it needs to be dedicated and devoted to me. That was God saying that. Now, how would you like to be Joshua? Think about this. This is like your first big leadership test, and you bring all these people together and you tell them your battle plan, your battle strategy. And they're probably sitting there going, we need Moses back. We, we got this crazy, I don't know what they called the political parties back then. We got this crazy right wing or left wing guy going. They didn't know what they had. You know, it's like march around the city like seven times, really? But they do what God said. And the walls fell down and the city is taken with this very miraculous victory. And so everybody is in high spirits. Now, you got to understand, this isn't how God wanted them to attack future cities, but I believe that God asked them to do this in this very, very first city because he wanted to teach them to depend on him, not their military strength. He wanted them to understand that he was their source of victory, not their own strength. And that's an important lesson for every one of us as well. So they defeat Jericho. And they move on to the second town because they had like 60-something little cities they had to take over to possess the land. And this is a, the second city is a really small city. 
called AI. And what they didn't know as they were going to conquer AI is that there was a man who was part of the Israelite, the Jewish nation, named Achan, who had ignored what God had said to do about Jericho. I mean, Achan, when he saw the walls and he saw all the plunder and he saw all the valuables, he saw all this gold and all these valuables in Jericho, he thought, why shouldn't we take this? It makes no sense for it just to lay here and go to waste. So he takes some of the gold and some of the valuables and he goes and he hides them in his tent and nobody knows about it except his family. Well, in the meantime, Joshua is setting up the army of Israel to go conquer Ai. And here's what happens next in Joshua chapter 7, if you want to follow along in your Bibles. Joshua chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. Now Joshua sent from some men from Jericho to Ai, which is, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel. And he told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and they spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So what happened is about 3,000 men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. So I want you to picture this. The Israelites have just came off this huge, miraculous victory. I mean, they took a large city, a very fortified city, in seven days just by marching around it. And then suddenly, everything falls apart on them because there's this little, bitty, small town. And they think that they're doing what God told them to do but things go south really quickly for them. And all of a sudden, this little bitty army is chasing them out of their territory. And they're asking what all of us ask in those moments. God, where are you? I thought you said you would be with us, God. I thought you told us to do this, God. God, why did you let this happen? Their hearts melted in fear. They are so afraid. They're thinking, we can't keep doing this. We got like 50, 60 more battles to fight. Now, you also have to remember that Joshua is very early on in his leadership. And so I'm sure he's thinking, man, are all these people going to turn on me? Are, are these people going to listen to me anymore? I mean, the first plan, it was kind of crazy. They listened. It worked out. We thought we were doing what God told us to do, and, it, and we didn't. We lost 36 of our guys, and we shouldn't have lost anybody. So here's what Joshua does. Verse 6, notice. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Remaining there till evening, the elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. Now you go, what's going on here? Well, this was kind of part of their cultural way for them to show humility and grief. But it was also their cultural way to show their dependency on God. So they kneel before God and they start praying. They say, God, what has happened? God, why did you let this happen? God, what are you going to do? 
And then Joshua finally speaks up. And Joshua said, alas, sovereign Lord. Notice how he says this next statement. Why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Literally, God, I think this is your fault. We did what we thought you told us to do. God, why did you do this? We're blaming you, God. He goes on. If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Like, God, we, we should have never stepped out and done this. We should have never trusted you about this. And then it's almost after he, he starts blaming God, he catches what he's doing. He realizes what he's saying. Have you ever done that in prayer? You, you start being angry at God, and then you realize, oh, man, I'm letting God have it here. It's kind of like Joshua here. Notice what he does next. He goes, pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say? Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, he goes, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? In other words, Joshua's going, God, Man, this isn't just a problem for us. I think this is a problem for you too. God, I'm scared that we're going to get wiped out now. But God, I think you should be scared that nobody's going to trust you again and that your name is going to be a joke. It's going to be a mockery. Your reputation's on the line, God. So I'm praying, but God, you've got to act. Don't miss that line because we've done that so many times that I just said to you there. God, I'm praying, but God, you've got to show up and act. God, I'm praying, and I'm going to stay on my knees, and I'm going to pray, but you need to clean this up, God. But God doesn't respond the way that most of us think God should respond when we get on our knees and we're desperate before God. God, God doesn't respond to Joshua by saying, you're right, Joshua. I hadn't thought of any of this. I, I, need, I need to fix this right away. So Joshua, you just stay here in prayer and you just watch what I'm going to do. No, that's not what happens. Notice what happens in verse 10. Here's what happens. The Lord said to Joshua, who's on his face before God in prayer. The Lord says to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? And I'm sure Joshua's going, well, I'm praying. And it's like God's saying to Joshua, why in the world are you praying? And Joshua's going, because that's what I thought we needed to do. And by the way, I was kind of trying to figure out how else to blame you for all this mess. Like, were you not really listening to me, God, about this whole thing? And God's basically saying, well, quit praying and get up on your feet. And then Joshua basically, or God says something to Joshua that surprises Joshua. I think it's going to surprise a lot of all, all of us. Basically, God says to Joshua, by the way, I didn't create this mess. You did. So you're going to fix it. You go, what do you mean? Look what happens in verse 11. He says, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. God is telling Joshua, he says, this is why everything went wrong at Ai. You violated a covenant. Israel has sinned. Notice what God says next. They have taken some of the devoted things. 
They have stolen. They have lied. Notice how many times it says they. They have taken. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. And here's what God tells Joshua next. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Now, let me ask you a question. Did everybody in Israel take something that was devoted from Jericho? Did everybody in Israel take some of the devoted things that they were supposed to leave in Jericho? No, no. Only one person, Achan. And his family were accomplices because they knew about it. And here's what I don't want you to miss about what's happening in your family, what's happening in your marriage, what's happening in our country. But here's the thing you understand. God is giving us a glimpse into what happens to a community or what happens to a group of people when one person acts irresponsibly. It affects everyone. Your irresponsibility doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone around you. And it is like at the very beginning of them conquering the promised land, God is teaching them this very important lesson because God wants to teach them as this new nation early on in their history. And I'm telling you, it's a lesson that all of us would be very, very wise to own and to understand. And, and when we own this and understand this, all of a sudden, we, we quit pointing our finger at everybody around us, and it helps us to look in the mirror. In fact, write this lesson down that God is teaching them. Here it is. Eventually, your irresponsibility becomes someone else's responsibility. And you know this is true, don't you? Eventually, your irresponsibility becomes somebody else's responsibility. See, eventually, not just like we talked about last week, not only do you reap what you sow, but here's what God is teaching the nation of Israel, and he's teaching us through what the lessons we learned from them, and that is this. Not only do we reap what we sow, but other people have to reap the consequences of what you've sown. Not only do you feel the effect of your irresponsibility, but other people around you, they feel it as well. So while you have to carry some of the weight or the burden of your responsibility, they have to carry some of the weight of the burden of your irresponsibility. And some of you are sitting here right now at one of our churches and you're going, oh, I'm on the receiving end of that right now. And you're thinking, this is just not fair. Because you're sitting there thinking, I wasn't irresponsible but their irresponsibility has wrecked my life and I've had to carry the weight and the burden of what they did and my life's not the same now. It's not even close to the same and it's just not fair. And here's the thing we have to understand about being responsible. While this may not be fair, it is true. It is a principle 
of life. It's just the way that life works. Your irresponsibility will eventually become my responsibility. This is true in friendships. This is true in marriages. This is true in families. This is true in a church. This is true in a workplace. This is true in any community. And this is absolutely true in a nation. This is why excusing or ignoring or enabling irresponsible behavior, this is why it is so dangerous. And it is why your choices are to some extent my business. And it's why my choices are to some extent your business. Because the consequences of your irresponsibility are not just simply isolated to you. They flood over into the lives of everyone around you. And they affect everyone around you. And many of you, you're experiencing that. So let's get real personal for just a moment. And I want to ask you some questions that I really hope will cause you to think differently about how you view and respond to irresponsibility. Here's the first one, really personal one. Are you hiding behind your pride? I think we've all done this. Some of you, you know you're being irresponsible in a certain area. And you're just too proud to admit it. Therefore, you're too proud to change. In fact, in your pride, you're, you're acting like you don't even care how you're affecting other people. But here's the thing you need to understand. Your irresponsibility will eventually become somebody else's responsibility. Listen, your spouse or your future spouse is going to pay the price for your irresponsible choices that you're sowing right now in your life with your finances, with your sexual purity, about your education, about your health, about your career. And what you're telling yourself right now is, well, it's your right to do what you want to do with your life, and it is nobody else's business. But here's the thing. You need to own your irresponsibility. You need to stop hiding behind your pride and become responsible. Pride is one of the greatest ways that we hide our irresponsibility and justify ourselves. The second one is, are there irresponsible people in your inner circle? See, for too many of us, we'd have to say that is absolutely true. In other words, are there people in your inner circle that you just keep enabling them by bailing them out and continuing to make excuses for them? In other words, you don't confront them. You know what's going on in their life, but you won't speak up. For some of you guys, I mean, you know your friend is sleeping with somebody who shouldn't be sleeping with, and you're not calling him out. You're not saying anything about it. You, you know that he's consuming porn, and yet you just keep quiet about it. You know that he's drinking too much. Or if you ladies, you know that she's spending too much shopping, and she just keeps racking up more and much more debt, and you just keep trying to cover for them. Or some of you, you know that they're blowing school off, or, or they're stealing from work. They're not showing up at work when they're supposed to show up. In fact, you know that the choices they're making are not good. For others of you, you know the choices that they're making about their health are going to end up costing them the quality of their life, or maybe it's going to cost them their life too early. But you don't love them enough to say something. 
So what you've done is you've continued to encourage their irresponsible behavior by enabling it. You really have to stop the enabling. It just encourages irresponsible behavior. So we have to stop the excusing. We have to stop the enabling. Here's the third question. Are you expecting God to fix your irresponsibility? Are you you expecting God to fix your irresponsibility? I mean, we've all done this. If you're a Christ follower, I'm sure you've done this. We've all hid behind our prayers, haven't we? In fact, let me help you understand how to know if you're doing this. First, when God has already addressed something very specific and very clearly in Scripture, you don't need to pray about it. You just need to obey it. Like, you don't need to pray about whether you need to move in with your boyfriend or not or whether you need to sleep with your girlfriend or not. I mean, the Scripture's really clear on that one. Don't do that. You don't need to pray about whether you should find a job or just live off the government. I mean, Scripture's really clear about that. Go get a job. If you don't work, you don't eat. You don't really need to pray about whether you should have an affair. Oh, we, we got this connection thing. No, Scripture is very clear going on. Be faithful to your, to your spouse. See, you don't even need to pray about whether you should be generous or not. I mean, people tell me that. Oh, I need to pray about, you know, if I'm going to be. No, no, no. You don't need to pray about whether to be generous. You don't need to pray about whether to go in debt. I mean, God has already addressed those things in Scripture. Stop praying and start doing what God says to do. You just do what you know God says to do. Now, here's another way to know that you're hiding behind your prayers. It's when you don't follow up your prayers with action. In other words, this is so important. Let me say this again. If you're trying to pray your way out of something that you behaved yourself into, you need to add some action to your prayers. See, some of you have behaved your way into a financial mess. You got credit card bills that are so high. You got consumer debt that is out of control. You got no financial margin. You are drowning in debt and creditors are calling you. And you're, every time you walk into a gas station or someplace where they sell a lottery ticket, you're saying, God, should I pray? I'm going to pray. God, should I buy a lottery ticket? And God's going to go ahead and answer that. No, because lottery tickets are taxed on people that can't do math. It's like, don't buy a lottery ticket, get a budget. And get a job. I mean, ask God to get you back on track, absolutely. But then get a plan to pay off that debt and start being responsible in that area of your life. Some of you, you are praying for God to change your health. But you have a health problem that God behaved you into. Or not that God behaved you in, that you behaved yourself into. In fact, some of you, you've asked me, all of our churches, you said, Paul, are you sick? Because I've lost like 30-something pounds over the last um, six months. I'm sick in a lot of ways, but not physically. But anyhow, that's a whole nother deal. No, I, I was at the doctor, and I was telling him some of the issues I was having. And he looks at me and goes, well, if you don't lose about 30, 35 pounds, just plan on being this way the rest of your life, you know? It's your problem. Here's how you fix it. And I'm fixed to do a series on take responsibility for your life later this year. So what else can I do? but take responsibility for my life. Otherwise, I stand up here like a hypocrite, right, during the series. See, some of you, you have health problems that you behaved yourself into. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Put down the Oreos. 
because of my soul. Lord, have mercy. <laughs> He's not going to hear that prayer. But anyhow, put down the Oreos and start eating healthy and start exercising. Listen, some of you, you're praying for God to change your marriage. Well, keep praying. But start investing in your relationship with your spouse. And the first step is become the person that you wish they were. You want a God-honoring spouse that loves God and loves other people and loves you well, then you become that person. Some of you, you want your kids to be different. Don't just pray. Change how you parent too. And you're going, I don't know how to do that. Well, come back for the next two weeks and bring some other families with you because I'm going to spend two Sundays talking about how Melody and I, the lessons that we use to parent our, our children for these last 20-something years. So I think you will want to be a part of that. But you got to take action. You just can't pray about it. See, you need to take responsibility for the areas of your life where you have been irresponsible. Because see, your irresponsibility... We learned through this experience with Joshua and the nation of Israel. Your irresponsibility will become somebody else's responsibility. And let me just say something to those of you who are students and young adults. This is why your parents talk to you about being responsible. Because while they could not articulate this principle, they know it. Because they've experienced it. And it not only makes your life harder, but it makes their life harder and all the people around your lives harder. And they don't want you to have to deal with that. And what it ends up doing is it just costs a lot of life. And see, that's what Satan wants. He, he wants to waste our time. Now, here's the thing. This truth is just how life works. And some of you are sitting there thinking, man, I have been very irresponsible. And it already kills me that other people are having to be responsible for my past irresponsibility. What I do if I've already blown it? Let me tell you what to do. If you've already blown it and you want to get it right, please listen. I'll give you several steps here. The first one is you repent before God. You confess to God what you did was wrong, that you've sinned against God and you've sinned against other people, and then you accept God's forgiveness and his grace that he offers you for your sin. Listen, that's why the cross matters. That's why the resurrection matters. Listen, when Jesus died on the cross and rose again to pay the penalty for your sin, he died for every one of us. For every one of the sins that you would be committing, for every one of the sins that you and I would be dealing with, including the ones that you're dealing with right now. So accept God's forgiveness that he's already offered. But to accept that forgiveness, you have to repent on the front end. Listen, your, your sin is no surprise to God. He, he chose to love you before you ever said, I'm going to repent and follow you. And then after you repent, the second thing you do is you make restitution. You make restitution to the people that you've hurt, that your irresponsibility has made them have to take on responsibility. And you do the best that you can to pay them back and make that back and let God then redeem that pain for good. Don't waste your pain. See, God wants to use what you've been through to teach others. So just cooperate with him and let him bring some good out of the bad. I'm just telling you folks, this is the beauty of what God does. He can redeem any pain. He can redeem any heartache. He can redeem any heartbreak. He can redeem any problem in your life if you'll just offer it to him. Please don't ignore and excuse your irresponsibility anymore because here's the truth. Every day of irresponsibility, every day 
that goes by where you're irresponsible, what it does, it just creates a heavier weight that somebody else is going to have to carry. Because here's the thing, eventually your responsibility becomes somebody else's responsibility. And for you personally, not only does it become somebody else's responsibility, but every step of irresponsibility that we take, the further we take the step, the longer we make the journey back. So let's be responsible in every area of our life. And I promise you, you'll be happier. Your relationships will be so much healthier. Our community will be so much stronger. And the people around you are going to be loved, and they'll be so glad that you did. And maybe, here's the thing, maybe if all of us choose to be responsible in every area of our life, maybe, just maybe again, our nation will become a nation built on responsibility once more. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we've excused, we've enabled, we've hid behind our prayers We've blamed, we've justified. And this morning, we just come before you and say, God, we we repent of our sin of irresponsibility. And we're asking you now, God, to forgive us of that and help us to take the steps that we need to make restitution and make things right God, I just want to thank you that your grace redeems the pain of our past. So, Lord, I just pray right now that your Holy Spirit will just show up in these next few moments as we celebrate what you did for us through your death and your resurrection on the cross by taking communion. May it drive home this truth that we've looked at this morning. Thank you for your incredible love to us. God, for some, this morning is the morning they're saying, Jesus, I come to you as a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm asking you to come in my heart and forgive me of all of my sin. And I'm asking you to lead me into a relationship with you. I'm just going to keep coming back. I'm going to keep learning what it means to be a responsible, fully devoted follower of Christ. Thank you, God, for how you're going to redeem all of our pain of our past through your incredible grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, um, before we close out today, I just want to invite all of you to all our churches. Um, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and by the way, if you just prayed to receive Jesus and ask him in your heart, let us know that on that Connect card or stop by the gallery on your way out. We'd love, love to help you take some next steps. But the reason that we take communion from time to time here is to remind ourselves what Jesus Christ went through to make forgiveness available for us. Think about it. Jesus voluntarily took full responsibility for our irresponsibility. He went to the cross and he died and he didn't demand payment for our sin. Instead, he paid our sin debt by shedding his blood on the cross for dying for us. He gave his life, all of his life for you and for me because I was irresponsible. You were irresponsible. So what communion is, communion is our declaration of saying, God, because of your amazing sacrifice for me, I am surrendering all of me and giving it all to you. God, take my life. It's all for you. I don't want to be irresponsible anymore. So what I'm going to do for us, I'm going to pray for you. And then after I pray, 
There's going to be a song that's going to be sung on each of your church, at each of your campuses. And just let this song be the prayer and the declaration of your commitment to be fully surrendered and fully devoted as a follower of Jesus Christ from this day forward. Saying, God, I want to be a responsible follower of Christ. And so as they sing, once you have fully just said, God, I surrender all. I repent. I ask you to help me redeem my past. Then I want you to eat the bread that's on the cup there as a reminder of Jesus' body that was broken where he voluntarily paid the price for our irresponsibility as we sinned against him. And then drink the juice, which is a reminder of the blood that Jesus shed for us to wash away all of our sins so we could live with no guilt and no shame. Because that's what being in Christ is. It's a no guilt and it's a no shame zone because Jesus Christ paid for all of our sin, no matter how irresponsible we were. So let me pray for us and then join us in communion. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this incredible moment. God, being irresponsible in our lives can bring a lot of shame and guilt. And I thank you that we get to have this moment where we're reminded in Christ as forgiven people, while we have a responsibility to live responsible from this day forward, um, we get to live in a no guilt, no shame zone because of what you did for us on the cross. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.